Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include literature, creative destruction, and supermarkets. The first speaker today will be Angus Fletcher, who is a professor at Ohio State University. I first met Angus when I listened to his screenwriting class offered online by the teaching company. The course was fantastic. I loved Angus's passion for methods to write a great screenplay. Angus has a new book entitled Wonderworks, the 25 Most Powerful Inventions in the History of Literature that applies modern psychology and neuroscience to understand techniques that authors use in the art of storytelling. A few weeks ago on What Happens Next, we had a conversation with Algene Harmetz, who is a film historian, about the making of the movie Casablanca. I plan to ask Angus about the screenwriting methods in that Hollywood classic. Our second speaker is Philippe Agion, who is a professor at the College de France and at the London School of Economics. His research focuses on the economics of growth, and in particular, his pioneering work on the application of the economist Joseph Schumpeter's work on creative destruction to explain the economy's endogenous growth. Today, Philippe will be discussing his new book entitled, The Power of Creative Destruction, Economic Upheaval, and the Wealth of Nations. Our final speaker today will be Ben Lohr, who is the author of The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. Ben explores the economics and inner workings of the American supermarket. He will cover how entrepreneurs fight for shelf space and the mechanics for food distribution. Since the beginning of what happens next, I have commented on the monthly employment report because it includes the most important economic statistics. The volatility of these employment numbers have been unprecedented, and they help us understand what is going on in the real economy. The Bureau of Labor Statistics report was released a week ago, but I took the July 4th holiday off, so my analysis is unusually tardy. I want to focus our listeners on the surprising differences between the two employment measures calculated each month. The BLS employs two different surveys to estimate the changes in employment. The first is the establishment that surveys large firms that include around 150,000 businesses and asks them the number of new hires and fires. The household surveys 60,000 homes and asks over the phone how many people in that home got hired, fired, or left the labor force. Each survey has their respective benefits and problems. The household surveys covers many types of employment that are not covered by our largest firms, but the household survey has a variance that is five times greater. Betsy Stevenson, who was the former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor in the Obama administration, spoke twice on our podcast previously. And she mentioned that when she analyzes trends in U.S. employment, she uses an estimate based on the three-month average of employment changes in the household survey plus the current month for the establishment survey. Betsy uses weights of 60% for household and 40% for establishment because she believes the household trends more but uses an average because of its higher variance. Let me get to the punchline. The establishment survey is currently showing solid growth in employment, but the household survey is not. The question is why and which survey is telling us the more accurate story. Here are the numbers. The establishment survey shows employment growth of 850,000 in June and 1.7 million new jobs for the past three months. The household survey showed zero growth last month 
and only 750,000 for the previous three months, or a difference between the two surveys of 1 million jobs. Which survey is more accurate now? Who knows? But it is important to consider because it will impact Fed policy and the pace of our recovery. Here's what we need to know. There are over 9 million Americans looking for work and even more job openings. Economists like labor economist Casey Mulligan, who spoke in our podcast several times, thinks that this chasm is caused by very high unemployment benefits. Casey hopes that these distortions will be reduced after September when the federal government's extra benefits are scheduled to end. Many small businesses were forced to close because of COVID, and most of them will never reopen. Those workers from these closed firms will end up working for either large established firms or newly formed companies. It is possible that this shift of workers from closed small businesses to large established firms explain the rosy establishment survey employment results. Let me give you an example. Amazon is currently hiring like crazy. It's a large established firm. Small uh, stores, uh, one-man operations that you often see on your street corners that are closed permanently are not included in the survey and therefore bias the establishment results. The establishment survey uses a historic model to estimate job gains and losses from small firms and newly established firms who are not surveyed, but we were living in unprecedented times, so that model may be wildly off. I have not seen the discussion about the different survey results in the business press, but I expect it to become a big story if these different survey results are ongoing. One last point is that we hear from small businesses that they're having a very difficult time hiring and keeping workers, which is consistent with the idea that workers are drifting away from small firms and heading towards larger established firms. I would like to expand the What Happens Next audience so that many more people can enjoy our program. I started a social media outreach using Twitter to increase listener engagement. Please use Twitter or email me to ask questions during this live discussion. Our Twitter username is What Happens in Six where six is the number. I want to hear from you. You can always email me at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. All right, let's start the show. Our first speaker today is Angus Fletcher, an English professor at The Ohio State University. Angus, please go ahead. I'm here to tell you that what's next in our future is literature, because literature is the most powerful technology that we humans have ever invented, more powerful than computers, rocket ships, and artificial intelligence. By literature, I mean the classics like Sappho and Shakespeare and Maya Angelou, but I also mean Winnie the Pooh and comic books like Alison Bechdel's Fun Home and TV shows like Tina Fey's 30 Rock and films like Casablanca. All that is literature. All that is the most powerful technology ever invented. Now, when I say that literature is the most powerful of all technologies, people sometimes think that I'm being metaphorical or over the top. But it's a literal scientific fact, which is why, to give you one example from my recent research, I'm doing a joint study with the United States Army in which we're testing a specific literary invention on 800 of the Army's top officers, majors, and colonels to help them boost creative thinking in pressurized situations. So in other words, we're testing how a literary technology can increase your performance in life and death environments to think fast and devise original solutions to rapidly changing problems that computers and artificial intelligence can't solve. And the data is solid enough that we've already got strong interest from other sectors of the Department of Defense and a half dozen Fortune 50 companies. The scientific reason that literature is so powerful is that it allows us to get more out of our brain. 
And the human brain is, as we all know, the most powerful thing on earth for good or for ill. So by helping us get more of the good and less of the ill, literature can transform the globe, giving us more medicine and innovation and less prejudice and hate. We've all experienced those literary benefits firsthand. We've all read a book and felt better or read a poem and felt uplifted or watched a play and felt our imagination spark, inspiring us to dream up new possibilities. And what our research at Project Narrative does is take the next step. It identifies the specific nuts and bolts, the specific technological innovations, the specific invention blueprints that literature uses to generate its psychological benefits. Then we run experiments to quantify those psychological benefits to help you get more of the good stuff waiting on your bookshelves. So, for example, if you wanted to boost your optimism, availing yourself of the mental benefits that Martin Seligman and other psychologists have associated with a shift out of pessimism, we can point you toward what fairy tales are most likely to help and also which fairy tales to avoid. Hint, avoid most of the stuff made by Disney. With that scientific know-how, you can read more intentionally, targeting your reading to get more of what you want now, and changing your reading to shift as your own personal wants and needs evolve. So if you want to get more creative, there's a technology from Shakespeare. If you want to help recover from trauma, there's a technology from ancient Greek tragedy. If you want to get over anger, there's a technology from the Hebrew Bible. If you want to become a better problem solver, there's a technology from Edgar Allan Poe. If you want personal growth, there's a technology from Maya Angelou. If you want more courage or life purpose or any of dozens of other psychological benefits, there are technologies for them too. I'm able to do this work because I have dual training in neuroscience and literature, but I don't do my research alone. I do most of it in collaboration with neuroscientists, psychologists, and doctors. And that interdisciplinary focus is why our research has attracted interest outside of university literature departments, inside of hospitals, engineering labs, and as you might have seen at J.P. Morgan and McKinsey. But our research also has revolutionary consequences for the way that we teach literature at school. A scientific approach to literature's technology can access more of the practical potential of the humanities. It can help undergraduate engineers invent more creative technologies, and science PhDs imagine new experiments, and students of all kinds boost their mental well-being. But to do all this, we have to change the way that we teach literature in our schools. We have to stop telling students to interpret books and write argumentative essays. That is the same pre-scientific approach that was taken to literature in the Middle Ages and that is recycled today through institutions like the Common Core. Instead, we need to bring psychology and neuroscience and medicine into literature classrooms, marrying cutting-edge lab research with classic novels, plays, and poetry empowering students from kindergarten to college to tap into the parts of literature that their brains intuitively respond to, the characters, the stories, the worlds, the emotions. Hopefully that sounds intriguing, even exciting, but because it's a radical change, I often get questions and skepticism, so if you have concerns, I'd love to talk them through. I'm not here to force science on anyone, but I believe that we have an opportunity in front of us to use science to unlock more of the power that's in our favorite books and films to make a happier, mentally healthier, more resilient, more courageous, more joyful, and more creative future. The future, I hope, that's what's next. Fabulous, Angus. 
All right, let's start out. Uh, I'm really interested in how it's going to change the teaching of literature in schools. Uh, in your book, you have a chapter on Hamlet, for example, and so maybe I'll start with that because that was a, a, a play that I was taught in high school. Um, how would you teach uh, Hamlet that's different from the way that I was probably taught? And in what way, um, like what, what are your objectives and what sort of homework assignments or essay writing would I do differently uh, in your paradigm? So first of all, in my classrooms, I don't assign Hamlet. Even though I'm an expert in Hamlet, even though I published a whole book on Hamlet, I don't assign Hamlet. And in fact, I don't assign anything. I tell my students to bring in their favorite works of literature or, or whatever it is that they're reading. Or in advanced classes, I tell them to bring in literature from people they admire or like or respect, you know, to find a parent or a mentor or a hero of theirs and find what their favorite poem was and bring that in. So the whole point of the way that I would like to teach is to empower students to bring in their own readings as opposed to assigning readings to students. Because I think on the most fundamental level, the whole joy of literature and the whole emancipation of literature is being able to walk into a library and choose what to read. I mean, that primordial sense of possibility is the number one thing the literature gives us, the sense that we can create something new um, as opposed to being told something old. And that idea of being told something old is, I think, what most of us get when we're in school. You know, we get this book, it's an old book, and then we get this anxiety, we feel we have to interpret it or analyze it in a way that pleases our teachers, and it makes us conservative. Um, so I, first of all, I just want to get rid of all of that. Uh, if you wanted to read Hamlet, if you came to me and said, Angus, I love Hamlet, I want to read this, then I would say, absolutely, let's read it together. But if you wanted to read something else, we would do that. Then whatever it is that you brought in, whether it's Hamlet or something else, the first thing is, is we would not read it for its themes. We would not spend a lot of time arguing about what it meant. Um, that's the approach that was developed in the Middle Ages to read the Bible, where people just got into endless arguments. And you will notice that in modern literature departments, it's the same way. All people do is argue over the meanings of, of text, and then everybody gets their own meaning, and then we spend a lot of time talking about ambiguity, you know, or whatever as a kind of um, high value of literary works. And that's just another way of saying that we're all having an argument that we can't resolve. And that's not helpful. What is helpful is to start by identifying what your emotional response or your imaginative response is to a text. And that means bringing in all these questions that we're not allowed to talk about in school anymore. So, for example, what characters did you like? Why did you like those characters? Um, were you surprised by the story? Did you feel a sense of suspense? Um, did you feel fear? Did you feel joy? Bringing in all those kinds of questions that starts to allow us to process your brain's natural and normal psychological response to literature. And then finally, instead of having you write a paper, you know, in which you use supporting evidence, which is supposed to teach critical thinking, instead what we would do is we would have you write your own work of literature. We would have you write your own creative work. And we would, in that way, teach creative thinking. And by teaching creative thinking, what we would do is we would help empower you to leverage the imaginative potential of literature and carry it outside of the classroom to solve problems in your own life, whether you're a scientist or an engineer or a doctor or an artist or a politician or a business person, to leverage that creative potential in literature so that instead of, you know, having an argument and writing a thesis and using evidence, you'd instead be using your brain to create, to generate, and imitate the same force that went into the literary work to begin with. 
you know, that's very consistent with um, your screenwriting class. So you would always have uh, a sample of, let's say, Princess Bride, and then you would say, okay, look at how uh, the author uh, wrote this screenplay to, to follow a certain path. Uh, why don't you at home try to write a pilot or write a screenplay that would focus on that? So this idea of, of being a creative person yourself is a, is a consistent theme of yours. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's kind of curious about my background is I started out in neuroscience. I did not start out in literature at all. I started out in neuroscience, and I started out in neuroscience in a neuroscience lab. And what we thought in that lab, as everyone did at the time, was that the brain was basically like a computer that it basically operated like artificial intelligence operates. And it just took in a lot of data and it crunched that data and then it came up with judgments. And, you know, the only time the brain misfired, we thought, is when it had emotion or something like that that came in and kind of corrupted its judgment and interfered with its decision-making. But the more you understand the brain, the more you understand the mechanics of the brain, the more you understand the brain does not work at all like a computer. It's not logical. (laughs) It doesn't take on huge amounts of data. It doesn't do any of that. What's special about the brain is that it's creative. I mean, the human brain is enormously creative, and it has a series of machine mechanisms inside it, built into it, that are not magic, that don't involve, you know, the soul or or imagination, but are there that you can study in a nuts and bolts way that generate creativity. And so the reason I left neuroscience and went to literature to get my PhD in literature was because I wanted to study creativity, and I thought... Literature is a great example. That's where creatives go. They go to create stories. They go to create art. I want to understand how that operates. And so I was surprised, as I think many people are surprised when they get into literature classes, to to realize that actually most of what you do in literature classes today is critical thinking, which is a species of logic, which is the same thing that a computer can do. And so ever since I had those early classes, I thought to myself, well, we need to turn this education around. We need to tap back into what it is that people respond to intuitively about literature, which is its creative force. And everyone, when you read a book or a story, the first thing you do is you enter into the character's perspective, and you start imagining yourself as that character. You start imagining, what would I do as this character? And, you know, we've all had the experience (laughs) as a child when we read a book, which we entered into maybe a a fantasy world or science fiction world or what have you, where we started imagining ourselves in that world. And we thought, Where would I go in this world, and how would I journey in this world, and how would I do these things in this world? That's the immediate primordial power of literature. And so even though my background and my training started out in neuroscience and was a PhD in literature, I've gradually transitioned over my career to teaching more and more MFA classes in creative writing and to working more and more in creative industries like Hollywood, because I think that's ultimately what literature should be used for. And the fact that it's now used in classes to teach other things like arguments Um, is, to me, very counterintuitive and not very scientific. And so I would really like to see there be more emphasis on creative writing at a young age in schools and more of an emphasis on, if you like a movie, write your own movie. If you like a poem, write your own poem. And that, to me, I think is really how we learn from authors because ultimately, do we go to Shakespeare to learn right and wrong? You know, do we go to Maya Angelou? to learn right and wrong, or do we go to them to learn how to write, how to create, how to think, how to imagine, how to develop characters, how to tell a story? I mean, that's what they're experts in. So that's always been kind of the focus of my my training and and kind of my my work, and and I'm really glad you responded to the the screenwriting class. And, and, And that, I think, in general, is something that most people respond to in education is a feeling of being empowered to do something that they want to do. And I think what most of us most want to do is create. 
Let me try a different line of question for a sec. Um, we had this um, education scholar, Edie Hirsch, on our call a few months ago. I don't know if you know his work, um, but he focuses on the importance of content. He thinks that um, all American children should have a similar syllabus, and therefore we would be exposed to the same sort of work, and therefore all Americans could have a conversation. He feels the same way about the French. The French should have their own works, and they should have their own conversation and should be able to speak uh, with each other. What he fears is that in many American classrooms, um, we learn uh, different books, different novels, different plays, and therefore it limits the conversation and undermines uh, the learning experience on a national basis. He doesn't care so much about what the books are. He just wants there to be a lot of overlap. What you're heading for is almost no overlap. Everyone gets to decide on their own, even within the classroom. How do you worry about Edie Hirsch's concern about a national conversation with all this freedom? Well, I think that's a totally non-biological concern that he has, frankly. And that's an ideological concern. So, I mean, humans, our brain evolved to function in diverse and shifting environments. And we have a lot of anxiety uh, that, that is misplaced, uh, that somehow being surrounded by a lot of diversity and change is bad for us. It's healthy for us. Um, humans evolved as empathetic, curious creatures. We're very adaptive. We're very good at changing. Um, and, you know, the more variety we have in our lives, the more stimulation we have in our lives, um, the happier we are. What causes us to be unhappy is not a variety of stories. What causes us to be unhappy is economic fragility or poverty or a sense that our, 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 our personal being could be damaged or harmed. So we don't like instability or variety in the sense that I could wake up one morning and then, and then you know, find I'm thrown out of my house. But we love the idea that we could turn on the TV and see something totally new. I mean, nothing's better in life than, than making a new friend and then realizing that she knows something about the world that we don't know at all. And nothing's better in life than going on a journey or a vacation to a different part of the world. So if we could have more of that variety, that cultural variety in our lives, we would be much more emotionally happy. And that's the balance we need is emotional variety, intellectual variety, cultural variety, but economic stability, medical stability, so that our bodies and the kind of basic well-being and needs are taken care of in that way and our minds are allowed to bloom and flourish and explore and branch and go in any direction we want. So I could not be further apart on that issue, um, but hopefully that's a kind of positive debate for the people who listen to this podcast to have among themselves. So a couple weeks ago, we had Algene Hermetz, uh, a, film is, a film correspondent, a Hollywood correspondent, who had written a book on the history of Casablanca, the making of the movie. And in your uh, teaching company course, you had a full segment on the screenplay Casablanca. Um, so maybe you, a number of our listeners went out and rewatched or watched for the first time Casablanca in the last couple of weeks. So I thought this would be like a, a good way to sort of employ your techniques um, in the context of thinking about um, the structure and the making of the screenplay Casablanca. What do you think? Yeah, actually, well, I should be honest and say that I myself had not watched that film until I was asked to do that teaching company course. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a kind of, and I was kind of trained in a kind of newer Hollywood where everything was about, you know, color movies and animation and kind of fast, fast, fast. And first of all, just watching that movie was just, just a tremendous pleasure because to me, it was such an uplifting and hopeful and joyous movie. 
Um, I mean, even though it's a movie in black and white, it's a movie that touches the heart. And it's a movie that by the time they get, you get to the end of it, you feel just a deep, powerful hope, a deep, powerful sense that people can be redeemed um, and that the future can be better. And so, you know, I did with that film what I do with all my work, which is that um started out with a kind of scientific research. We worked with a large kind of population of audiences to kind of talk and determine what their emotional responses were to the film. And we found out that my response was, was relatively consistent. In fact, really was consistent in the sense that most people who, who get to the end of that film feel a sense of emotional renewal um, and hope. And we then went into the technology of the film in terms of what it was doing and how it was building that. And the film takes a lot of technologies from uh, 19th century romanticism. And in the romantic era, um, as, as people will know if they're a fan of, of poetry and painting from, from that era, the kind of core of the art is to reconnect us with our nature, with our inner nature, with what we were born as. And the idea being that what happens over time is that culture and logic and society and all these um, kind of artificial things take over and alienate us from ourselves. And the more we become obsessed with the job that we have to do or the more we get obsessed with the kind of machinery of society, the further we get away from our core self, which is our heart, which is our ability to love ourselves and love other people. And what Casablanca does is it introduces you, in terms of its story world, into a world that has become that kind of heartless machine, that Nazi world, where there's this kind of, uh, you know, relentless... Um, uh, artificial attempt to engineer a better society that is totally and fundamentally unhuman, that kind of makes sense to a certain kind of rationalist mind, but is just profoundly dismaying to all of us sentimentally and emotionally. And then it gives us a series of characters who are themselves alienated, who feel that they, that it's dangerous to feel and to care and to love. And, then what it does is having kind of put us in that place, it starts to unlock our hearts by looking back to the past, by looking back to Paris, by looking back to this moment where love was possible, where romance was possible. And it creates this ache in us as, as, as viewers to want to go back to that time, back to our earlier selves, back to our prior nature, back to who we were before the kind of world took over, before this kind of machine took over um, and alienated us from ourselves. And then that kind of locked state of emotion, of aching, of wanting, of desiring to go back to the past is held onto by the movie. It's a remarkably static movie in terms of its storytelling and its plot. That's why a lot of audiences now find it slow. Um, but what it's doing is it's putting you in this state of kind of compressed wanting to feel without actually being able to feel. And then in the last 15 minutes or so of the movie, all of a sudden everything happens. Um, the past returns to the present. The heart opens and unlocks. And you can just feel again. And it's that moment of feeling of your heart unlocking of your heart unfreezing that creates that sense of joy and enthusiasm and happiness that is kind of locked down at the end with that kind of final line and that kind of opening up of a new future. So hopefully when people watch Casablanca, that's what they felt. Hopefully they felt this sense of renewal. Hopefully they felt this sense of tension as they were watching it and wanting to care and wanting to hope of being unable to because everything was kind of locked in place. And then all of a sudden the moment of release and that's the kind of way that, that literature in general works. This literature is this technology for activating different parts of our heart, our emotions, 
different parts of our psychology, and then kind of shifting them around and moving them around to generate these powerful responses, which in the case of Casablanca is a renewal of hope and a sense that things can be better again. Yeah, I love the movie completely. Um, and one of uh, the interesting aspects um, in terms of character development, what we don't see is a lot of character development um, for a Victor Laszlo uh, or Ilsa. But we do see uh, character development for uh, the Claude Rains character and the Humphrey Bogart character um, as they've completely shifted in their uh, what they care about and how they behave. Um, how do you think about the, which characters develop and, and which ones don't? And is that important as you think about who the audience um, responds to in this film? Well, I mean, I think to, to say that Rick develops is, is correct, but also what, what he develops, how he develops is he gets back to who he was before he became jaded and cynical. So that's, that's an unusual kind of, I mean, I mean, that's, you know, that's like getting back to our true selves. I mean, that's like, if any of us have ever had that experience of, of getting into a job or getting into a stage in our life where we start to lose our way and we become disenchanted and we start to drift, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's where he is. And so really his character development is getting back to who he was. And at the time that that movie was made, I mean, and I think a lot of times now, people looked around and said, how have we got here? What are we doing with our world? I mean, this is not human. This world we build is not human. And why do we keep running forward in this direction that is hurting us? And I think what's remarkable about what those characters do is they have the bravery to let go of that and go back to who they were. And I think that's why the movie is both powerful but also plausible, because all of us have that inside us to go back. All of us can go back to being who we were. All of us can kind of give up the, the, the kind of, you know, artificial stuff that we've kind of put into our lives and the things that we're chasing um, because we think that somehow that's going to bring happiness and go back to who we were when we were younger. Um, and we're, we're better people. And I, and I think that's courageous, um, but it's in us. And to me, that's the, the power of the movie. And as far as the characters who don't change, I mean, I think, I think to a certain extent, I mean, when we're talking about Isla, I mean, you know, I mean, part of the reason she doesn't change is because she's already kind of whole to begin with in a certain way. I mean, you know, I mean, she, she's always a character who we admire, I think, from the beginning and is always kind of held out, certainly in the kind of romantic story structure as who we were and the person who, you know, when our heart was truest, we were with her. So I think that's why she doesn't change because she doesn't need to is because, you know, she is the heart. Um, do you find like uh, there's a universality to that story world. I mean, it came out um, when the Nazis uh, were basically running Casablanca, and then uh, the United States invades it around that time. Uh, Casablanca wins Best Picture in 1943, um, but it becomes like the, one of the most watched films of all time uh, in the decades and uh, even to the current day. What is it about Casablanca that makes it both universal and timeless? So I don't think it is universal or timeless. I'm just going to be honest about that because I'm a biologist and I don't think anything is universal or timeless. I mean, I think the dinosaurs made the mistake of thinking that they were universal and timeless. And I think if we humans make that mistake, we're gone. But I do think that it has enormous power for a lot of people and is going to continue to have a lot of power for a lot of people because what it's pointing to is the nightmare that we've created in the modern world. I mean, basically the modern world is a machine that has gotten away from all of us. Um, I think that's why people tap into it is because people want to feel and people want to believe that um, there's a way out of this 
prison we've created with, um, you know, empires and kind of, you know, um, these um, sort of large industrial uh, uh, corporations that have kind of taken over our lives and have kind of marginalized us in this, in this kind of huge rat race. And I think that we, that resonates very powerfully for people, and particularly after the Second World War, because, I mean, you know, the whole crisis that the world got into at that point was this idea, this kind of idea that we were going to build these better societies by imposing them on people. You know, that communism was going to impose a better society or that fascism was going to impose a better society. And I think people just realized, actually, I want to just, <laughs> I, I don't want to be kind of thrust into this man-made nightmare. You know, I actually want to kind of return to, to a simpler state of joy and happiness and hope and friendship, which is what really the end of the movie is about. So, I mean, the answer I would give is that, yeah. Is, uh, my final question for you is... Um your comment about Disney films being exactly the opposite of what you want. Um, needless to say, like many parents, I indulge my children with endless supplies of Disney movies, sometimes watching over and over again Beauty and the Beast, <laughs> The Lion King, almost on continuous uh, showings. Uh, we did have The Wizard of Oz also in that loop. Um, how do you, what is it about the Disney films that you found counterproductive in terms of creativity and uh, human development? Yeah, so if, if, if audiences want more of this, I just, um, Malcolm Gladwell has written about me on this, and I'm on his podcast in the future um, on this. But basically, we, this was a very surprising research result to me, because I got together with Marty Seligman, and we, were, we wanted to look at literature that created optimism. And our instinct was, well, optimism is created by fairy tales, and Disney fairy tales are so popular, they must be an enormous source of optimism. And it turns out that actually when people watch Disney fairy tales, the same thing happens, which is that they feel better in the short term, and then in the long run, they start to feel worse about themselves. And the reason for that is, is very simply that in Disney fairy tales, virtue is always rewarded. So good things always happen to good characters, and bad things always happen to bad characters. And that seems like that makes a lot of sense. You'd think you'd want, to wa you'd want your kids to watch movies where bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. But it turns out that when you're depressed or you're feeling down about yourself, mm -hmm. what that says to your brain is, if I'm feeling sad right now and bad things happen to bad people, there must be a reason why I'm feeling sad, and that must be that I'm bad. I must be being punished for being bad. And if I'm a bad person, I'm going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. So we just see that these Disney movies actually lead to catastrophizing and sadness. And actually what makes people happier is movies like Up, Pixar's Up, or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Movies that are about kind of random serendipity, that's what really helps people get their, their hope back because hope involves something good coming from something bad with no reason whatsoever. Um, and Disney movies are just far too logical and sort of almost too machined to allow for that, 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 that human optimism. All right, Angus, thank you so much. We're going to go on to our second speaker, uh, Philippe Aguillon. And Philippe is a professor yes. at... Philippe, you're up. You're going to be talking about your new book, uh, The Power of Creative Destruction, Economic Upheaval, and the Wealth of Nations. Philippe, tell us, uh, tell us about creative destruction. Yes. yes, thank you very much. Can you hear me well? Yes, speak me? up. Okay, I speak up. Creative destruction is the process whereby new innovations replace old technologies, whereby continuously new innovations make old technologies obsolete. For example, the steam engine replacing water wheels, electricity replacing steam engine, robots replacing Fordian uh, assembly lines. 
This is all about creative destruction. The history of growth is all about creative destruction. Now, the problem is that at the creative destruction involves a, a contradiction. On the one hand, you want innovation rents to encourage innovation. We innovate because we pursue rents. We get rents when you innovate. But on the other hand, uh, yesterday's innovators will be tempted to use their rents to prevent subsequent innovations because they don't want to be themselves subject to creative destruction. And you see, uh, uh, regulating capitalism, it's all about how to manage this contradiction. On the one hand, you give rents, you need rents, but you must make sure they are not used to prevent subsequent innovation. Schumpeter himself was pessimistic about the future of capitalism because he thought that the first innovators would turn into conglomerates that would prevent subsequent innovations. Uh, we are in, in this book instead, we are optimistic, but it's an optimism of the will. And we explain how we can avert Schumpeter's pessimistic prediction. What we do in this book is to use the lens of creative destruction to do three main things. First, to solve historical enigmas about growth. Second, to question some common wisdoms, some wrong policy advice. And three, uh, guidelines to rethink capitalism. So let me talk briefly about the three. One enigma is the secular stagnation. You know, since the early 2000s, uh, productivity growth in U.S. have declined in spite of the IT revolution and the AI revolution. How come with these revolutions that should boost growth, you see growth declining? And we explain in the book that, in fact, what happened is that with the IT wave, uh, uh, you had big superstar firms that developed through merger and acquisition. First, when they developed, growth went up. And that's what you see in the U.S. between 1995 and 2005, growth goes up. But then when these firms became they discouraged growth and innovation by other firms. But there is a way out. That's like Schumpeter pessimism. Huh? But there is a way out. It's competition policy. You saw Biden yesterday taking steps to improve competition policy in the U.S. And that's exactly what you need to do to, uh, to, to reverse and to, to deal with this secular stagnation problem. Okay? So that's the first kind of thing we do in the book, to deal with enigma, and in particular the enigma of secular stagnation. The second thing we do is to question some wrong policy ideas. First, one of them is to tax robots. There is the view that robots eliminate jobs, and because it eliminates jobs, the way to solve that problem is to tax robots. But we explain in the book that firms that automate and, and robotize, in fact, they create employment. Why? Because it might be true that some jobs, uh, some manpower is replaced by machines. But in fact, the firms that automate, they become more productive. Because they become more productive, they, they can lower their price so they can expand their market. And because they expand their market, there is more demand for their product and therefore themselves demand more employment. And that productivity effect more than counteracts the substitution effect of manpower by machines. So taxing robots would be counterproductive because you would prevent those firms from innovating, from becoming more productive, and at the end of the day, from creating jobs. Uh, the third thing the book does is to rethink capitalism. You see, what we explain in the book 
is that the U.S. is a fantastic ecosystem for innovation. We saw that with the vaccines. The best vaccines came from the U.S. because they have the whole ecosystem for vaccines. They have the BARDA, they have the NSF, the NIH, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, they have venture capital, they have institutional investors. The whole ecosystem of innovation is fantastic. Nobody does nearly as well as the U.S. when it comes to innovation. But on protection, the U.S. are not good. When you lose your job in the U.S. and you are white and Hispanic middle-aged, you go through a lot of stress. That's why you observe the increase in mortality of middle-aged white and Hispanic, which uh, Angus Deaton and Anne Case describe in their work. Whereas in Denmark, it's much more protective. When you lose your job in Denmark, no, no negative effect on your health at all because they created a system that really ensures you when you lose a job, you get a very generous unemployment insurance and the state helps you find a new job and retrain. And so now the challenge is to construct a capitalism that would be as innovative as the US capitalism and as protective and inclusive as the Danish or Scandinavian capitalism. Some people believe that if, uh, if you choose to be innovative, you need not to not be protective. You see that, that not being protective in the U.S. is a price to pay for the U.S. to be innovative. And I don't believe so. For example, I mentioned the secular stagnation and the need for more competition to, uh, to have creative destruction and growth resume in the U.S. Well, if you put more competition in the U.S., it will not only spur creative destruction and growth, but it will make growth more inclusive because you can have new entrants. New people can come in. So you can see that fostering competition in the U.S. Will, be, will make capitalism in the U.S. both more innovative and more inclusive. Another example is education. We know, we show in the book that, you know, the probability of inventing depends on your parental income. Why? Because it depends on your parental education. If you invest massively in good quality education, you will, have a, you will make the economy much more innovative, much more people can become innovators, but you will also make growth more inclusive. We have many what we call lost Einsteins in the US or in our, in our economies of people who are very smart, but they are born to poor families whose parents did not give them the education and the aspirations. And, and, and make, making up with a good education system would make the economy more inclusive, but also much more innovative. And at the end of the day, to avert Schumpeter's pessimism that innovators would turn into conglomerates that would block innovation, you need a triangle, what we call the magic triangle. The magic triangle is firms. You need firms to innovate. You need the state to regulate firms, for example, to impose more competition or greener innovation. But you need also civil society, because if you don't have civil society, there is very much the tendency for incumbent firms to collude with the state. And to prevent that collusion or to minimize the scope for collusion between uh, existing enterprises, uh, incumbent enterprises and the state, you need the civil society, the media, the unions, the, the, you know, to, to check on the, the voters, to check on the state, to make sure that the state is not in the hands of incumbent firms and therefore creative destruction can continue. And that's what we believe this triangle is the response to uh, Schumpeter's pessimism, and it's also the key for making creative destruction uh, produce more inclusive and greener growth. And I stop there. Thank you. Chris, thanks, Philippe. Um, I want to start, um, you, you mentioned Biden's increased steps of competition. He made an executive order yesterday that was unbelievably broad and covered many industries. Uh, but in particular, he... Um, 
he wanted to throw his hat in the ring to support um, Khan at the FTC and Wu, um, also who was working on uh, pro-competitive behavior. In the the last few weeks on the show, uh, we've been focusing on Amazon as an example of an innovative firm, um, but also that is facing increased scrutiny by the state. Um, yes. Let's look, take a look at that. So the speaker we had most recently on Amazon was the author Brad Stone, who wrote The Everyday yes. Store, and he also wrote Amazon Unbound. Mm-hmm. And he focused, ironically, on how innovative uh, Amazon was. And what the FTC, the uh, Linda Khan, who runs the FTC now, uh, what she she's very opposed to Amazon, and one of the things that she wants to do is to prevent Amazon from selling its own products, its own manufactured or its own products on its website. It can only be used to sell third party, um, which is different than every other um, consumer store that also sells its own products. How do you yeah. feel about Amazon as an example of? Our biggest upstart, probably our largest employer, is it a problem? Is um, has it already passed the baton as being yesterday's innovator, trying to undermine future innovation, or is this an example of a firm yeah. that's still innovating, and the government, if anything, is going to prevent further innovation by its uh, regulation? Yeah. So, so the view there, and we can see that in the data, is that these firms like Amazon, Google, uh, you know, uh, uh, Facebook. You know, they were big innovators and they contributed a lot, particularly Amazon, to the, uh, you know, growth that came from the IT revolution. So they had a period where they were really boosting growth in the U.S. But then what happened is that they were allowed to do merger and acquisition, to acquire new sectors or new product lines, you know, freely. And, uh, 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 and the problem is that then they became hegemonic and because they became hegemonic, they stifled uh, a subsequent innovation and entry. And we know that small firms tend to do more radical innovation than existing firms. When large firms absorb a small firm, we can see that the innovations are less drastic than they were when it was the small firm. So, I mean, lots of work recently has shown that by various uh, of my co-authors and other people. So, so the problem is that, you see, competition policy needs to be adapted to the digital era. It's very important, uh, you know, when you decide whether or not to allow for a new merger, not only to look at market definition and market share, but also to look at whether this merger will stifle or will not stifle subsequent entry and subsequent innovation. And that's what needs to be changed. And that's why uh, competition policy needs to be resourced deeply. Uh, uh, so, for example, Richard Gilbert from Berkeley is very much thinking along those lines. There is this need to rethink and redesign competition policy in the digital era. And, uh, would, you mind, uh, and so would you mind if, um, for example, they're going to limit Amazon's ability to sell, let's say, shirts or pants that they manufacture or um, produce under the Amazon name on the website is one of the proposals. Now, let's imagine that they got in the pants or, or shirt business, not by an acquisition of a manufacturer, but did it themselves. They got into the shirt business, but um, they got their own designers. They got their own plants. Maybe they got third-party deals with these plants. We're going to build this stuff. Are you troubled by that, or is it only in the acquisition of third-party manufacturers that gets you going? 
we see that the acquisition, uh, excessive acquisition tends to eventually stifle innovation. I think there is also a problem in having a firm having a span of control which is too big. Uh, I think at some moment it may become counterproductive. Uh, uh, so it might be that you know you are less you know innovative or creative when you control many lines. So. Well, that's where it has to be judged, you know, in each case. So if you acquire or you enter in a new activity, uh, will that stifle uh, entry and innovation? Because you see, you can also cross-subsidize. When you have a large firm that gets into a new activity, the large firm can cross-subsidize the line and, uh, and, do, and practice uh, dumping, you know, to discourage other entrants who don't have this uh, flexibility of the cross-subsidization across the various activities. So that's why you have to be a bit careful. I'm not a specialist of competition policy, but I can see the problem of, you know, allowing without any limit large firms to enter any kind of new sector uh, unboundedly because uh, then that creates unfair competition vis-a-vis the rest. Well, Let me give you a, that, a different that, example, that, just, and I don't mean to harp too much on Amazon, but one of the things no. that Brad Stone had to say was what Amazon does spectacularly well is logistic, yeah. both warehouse and distribution. And they went to um, the post office, they went to UPS, and they went to FedEx. And they asked, they said, look, we want to do this next day or two-day delivery, and we want to work holidays, and we want to work weekends. And they went to UPS and FedEx, and they said, look, we're a union, and our people don't work on the weekends, and we can't get them yeah. to work. And so Amazon said, well, you're forcing us to get into the last mile logistics business with all these Amazon trucks and people. Um, and they used third parties to help them in that process. And they had to literally develop a logistics system themselves. Now they're offering that logistics system, that new logistics system, out to third parties. So, for example, we had another call, uh, speaker on our show who mentioned yeah. that um, the GNC vitamin business, that GNC just called up Amazon and said, will you take care of all of our logistics? How do you feel when uh, Amazon um, goes into the logistics business and uh, delivers that last mile? Do you think that that also undermines competition? Or is this an example of the opposite, where it's innovating? Yeah, logistics? yeah. yeah. It, 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 all depends. it all depends how it's achieved. You see, to which extent they achieve it by, you know, we know also that with, um, in Amazon, you have problems of working condition in Amazon. You see what I mean? So that has been an issue raised. Uh, we also know that large companies benefited from not paying much taxes. You see, from avoiding, from doing a lot of tax optimization. So it all depends how it's done. I don't want to say that Amazon did this. I, I, you know, my answer is kind of general. So if it relies on, you know, escaping, you know, basic labor rules, uh, 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 by, uh, you know, doing, uh, 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 you know, optimiza- uh, multinational optimization, uh, taking advantage of loopholes in fiscal and social systems abroad. If it's done through that way, then I am against. If it's loyal competition, I'm always for loyal competition. So it has to be seen case by case. But it has, it's very important that the competition be loyal, you see. And that's, that's what has to be uh, analyzed. And also to look at this thing, will the takeover of the line or whatever, uh, stifle innovation there or not. So that's not easy to do. It's easier said than done. Uh, but we have to move in that direction. We have a question from one of our audience members, uh, Tony Kalenda. Tony asked the yeah. question, how do you retrain middle-aged workers who lose jobs? Can we really teach them Python? It sounds good, but does it really work? 
And of course, it all, the retraining, you're absolutely right. It depends a lot on having a good basic education. I think it's very important to invest in high-quality basic education because it's there that you learn to learn. You see what I mean? We, at school, we don't only learn, uh, you, we don't only acquire, uh, you know, particular knowledge about things. We also learn to learn. And, and, and we learn not to be afraid of having to learn. And I think that's very important. I think Scandinavia works well, not only because they put a good system for retraining, but because that system hinges on the basic education system, which is inclusive and of very high quality. So I think you need to act on both. If you, 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 with a very bad education system, you could have any uh, Danish system you want on the labor market. Uh, it would not do the job. So you need both. That, uh, you know, then people you know it will be easier to retrain, you see. And, uh, and I believe very much, but I believe very much in the retraining, but I believe very much also in what I call good jobs. We have, firms have to be induced to provide good jobs, jobs where you have on-the-job training, where you have, you know, tenure prospects and prospects for, you know, improving your status, even for low-educated. It's very interesting that more innovative firms, in fact, tend to provide more good jobs to uh, non-educated workers. So I think we have to, to, you know, to push anything that goes in that direction has to be, uh, has to be favored. And we discussed that in the book. Angus, um, I, I don't know if you're, you're, you're around, can you join in this? Um, you, you talked a little bit in your discussion about the role of innovation in education. Uh, how would you add to that, uh, of what Philippe just said? Well, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I think, first of all, what Philippe is talking about as education as a space in which to encourage um, openness and bravery towards innovation in general is absolutely true. I mean, that's one of the real values of a classroom space is things seem possible in a classroom which don't seem possible when you go out in the real world. So in the case of my students, a lot of time my students will go out and they'll have an internship and in the internship they'll suddenly become scared because they'll be told by a boss, oh, you can't do that or we don't do that here or whatever. Whereas they come back in the classroom space and we say, why not? Why can't you do that? What do you need to empower you to do those things? So first of all, just education itself is being a huge engine of innovation I think is very important. The other thing I would add, as you probably heard from my earlier remarks, is I think innovation itself needs to be innovated. Um, and I think, you know, when we hear questions about, you know, can you teach a middle-aged man to, to code Python or, or, what, or what have you, um, the first thing we have to do is, is, is we have to say, um, how can education meet the needs of that person? Not how can education force that person to do what it is that education wants them to do. You know, not how can education force you as a middle-aged man to learn Python, but how can education invite you in, empower you, open you up, ask you, what do you want to learn? How can we retrain you? So there's a kind of dynamic relationship so that instead of people feeling like they're compelled to be retrained like robots or widgets, they're empowered to join this kind of cycle of creative destruction so they don't fear change, that they, they themselves open themselves up to change. And I think that's really what we can do more of in our, in our educational institutions um, and also what we can do more of to our educational institutions. Yeah. Philippe, yeah, I fully, I, I fully agree with that. I think uh, education is a key input to innovation, and innovation is a key input to education, and they're totally intertwined. And uh, uh, so, uh, but education is very important. You know, very, uh, before there was the view that R&D subsidies would be the main thing to do. Uh, you put, uh, if you put R&D subsidies without an education, educational basis, uh, you know, the effectiveness of your R&D subsidies will be very low. So you need, uh, you, you need education 
for effectiveness of R&D policy. Quoi. But, but, but in the education itself, you, be, uh, you need to be innovative. You mentioned um, that the United States uh, is a fantastic ecosystem for innovation, and that yeah. you were not yeah. surprised, and you used the example of the vaccines, that yeah. the United States paved the way, a combination of government, the NIH, Medical Institute, but also the private firms, venture capital, and the distribution thereof. Um, what, you know, um, you know, you're, ironically, you're, you're, a professor at in multiple different countries. You were just a visiting professor yes. here at Harvard. You yes. a professor in France. You're a professor in London. You are our global guy. Okay, so um, I want to ask you this. Um, you know, I'm in the finance business. I've been in finance my whole career. I worked at Solomon yep. Brothers. Yep. And from time to time, I've had the opportunity to work with French banks. And i got to tell you, nothing is more unproductive than dealing with yeah, a French know. bank. It is I just know. extraordinary. I know. I know. Now, I, I don't I mean know. to beat up, but I have not dealt with French engineering no. firms or French culinary institutes. No. My experience is only have... with French banks. What yeah. is it, um, when you look at these, because one of the things like what Douglas North talked about was the role of institutions yeah. in economic growth. Yeah. What yeah. is it about French institutions particularly that, undermine innovation, and what is it about yeah. American yeah. institutions that encourage innovation? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's institutions and culture, I would say. Uh, uh, first, on institutions, for example, in biotech, for basic research in the U.S., you have the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is a, a huge sponsor foundation. There is very little mecenas in France, very, very little sponsorship in France. That doesn't exist. Basic research is underfunded dramatically in France. So all what basic research is underfunded. You have venture capital, very developed. Who are the venture capitalists? Most of the time, it's successful startupers, you know, uh, uh, entrepreneurs who did an IPO, and then they become venture capitalists. In France, uh, venture capitalists are civil servants, essentially, or, you know, uh, uh, they are not at all people who have gone through the experience of being themselves a startup and growing and becoming successful. And so it's very, so you have much more venture capital and much better trained, much more effective. You have institutional investors. They play a big role in innovation. I explain all that in the chapter 12 of the book. We don't have, we have much less developed institutional investment. And, and for the vaccine, you have the BARDA, Biologic Advanced Research Development Agency, created on the model, on the same model as DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. This is to turn basic research into mass industrial production very quickly on particular missions. It was very good with vaccines. The ARN messenger was invented. You had to turn this in less than one year into mass production of vaccines. BARDA would do the job. There is nothing like BARDA in France or in Europe. Nothing. So you see, so you have the whole ecosystem. You are much better on all grounds. Basic research, venture capital, institutional investment, BARDA, uh, DARPA. Uh, we don't have any of this. So we are well, well below you. You see what I mean? And we are, that's on the institution, but on the culture. There is a culture of risk. In the U.S., when you fail, early failure is not punished. In France, in the school system, people tell you that you're an idiot all the time. And so you're afraid of the teacher. You see what I mean? You don't dare. And you don't dare to ask questions. It's very impolite to ask a question to the teacher. Whereas in the U.S., it's welcome to ask a question to the teacher. And it's welcome early failure if it helps you learn. We don't have that at all in our culture. So it's both institutions and culture in France that are detrimental to innovation. In my introductory remarks, I commented on um, 
the establishment survey and um, I'll call it the creative destruction caused by COVID. Um, we've had yeah. more firms go bust um, probably in yeah. the last 18 months than probably in the history yeah. of the United States. You know, a lot of yeah. these firms, there's this economist we also had on the show who you probably know, Chad Spearson, who commented about the very different uh, variance in the returns on capital within industries that's uh, unlike anything we've seen before. Some firms have very low rates of return. Others have very high rates of return in the same industry. And what I suspect is happening right now is those firms that were having zero uh, or very, very low returns on capital pre-COVID experienced negative returns during COVID. They just decided to close up. And all those workers who have been working for these uh, firms with very low returns on capital are, without the choice, got booted because these firms closed and are now being gobbled up by these large established firms who have been historically very productive. Should we be thrilled to death about this creative destruction? Is this the best example of creative destruction in modern times? Well, look, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not happy about it particularly. I'm not, you know, creative destruction is a fact. So it's true that COVID uh, boosted, you know, spurred creative destruction. But although in France, during the crisis, it really, uh, France was so protective with firms, that uh, the French government, that, you know, the rate of bankruptcies went down by 30% in France. So during COVID period, in fact, because the government overreacted by protecting a lot, uh, the rate of creative destruction went down compared to previous years, you see. But now, of course, it will get up again. It will go back to normal. Uh, uh, so it depends what the government does. The U.S. government didn't react the way the French government did. But the French government, the way it reacted, it was true also for Germany and other European countries, they reduced creative destruction during COVID, okay, because they overprotected firms. Uh, uh, so now it will go back to normal. There will be something that will resume as before. Some activities may not resume as before. I mean, maybe we'll resort much more to, you know, uh, medical consultation online. I don't know if I will fly as much as I used to, because maybe now I, I will do conferences on Zoom, some of them at least. So, you know, uh, shopping online might develop. So there are things, telework, we know work from home will develop. So that will change also the way firms are organized, because of course they will, and uh, the work of Nick Bloom on uh, working from home tells you that it will last, uh, that, that somehow COVID produced a shift in, uh, you know, working from home much more. And once that shift is done, uh, uh, there is hysteresis. You don't go back to where you were before. So there will be this creative destruction. It all depends. That's very important why that you have a labor market system that accommodates it. You see, I mean, I think there is no drama in having more creative destruction. If whenever people lose their job, they are protected, they receive good unemployment insurance and retraining. I think if that is there, it's less of a drama then I think what we need to protect is more individuals than employment. That it's the individuals that you need to protect. And that's where the Danish model I find very attractive in that respect, because they found a way that, you know, uh, making creative destruction more human, more acceptable, you see. But also, because of that, they, they, they have no problem at all with creative destruction. And, let me, and, and, let me, uh, yeah. let me interrupt you just for a sec. Um, I mentioned in the opening remarks, um, we had uh, the labor economist from New Chicago, Casey Mulligan. Yeah. Speak on yes, I know Casey. I know him. I know him well. Yeah. yeah and Casey said, um, you know, when we have these very large uh, federal unemployment benefits that are going to yeah. go through September, all you're doing yes. is um, they're, no, they're not doing any retraining. 
these guys are just sitting home, losing, depreciating their skill set, um, and they're having to, you know, tax yeah. people yeah. who are working to, be, yeah. to yeah. allow people who would otherwise find employment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, we have more yeah. than that. I know the argument. Go ahead. You got I, know, I know the argument. I know the argument. I think there are two ways to answer. Of course, there is a way to say, you know, if you want people to get back to work, provide zero insurance and they will get back to work. It's true. You get the U.S. model where you have low unemployment rates, but very high mortality rates and stress and all that. I look at two indicators. I look at the unemployment rate and the stress as well. You see what I mean? And that's what's good with the Danish system is they found a system to reduce unemployment and also not have stress and opioids and all that. And how would they do that? If you lose your employment, you get 90% of your salary, but you have to retrain and the, and the state helps you find a new job. They propose you two new jobs in your qualification. If you refuse more than two, you lose your insurance. So you see, the idea is not to get, let people stay at home, it's to have very active labor market policy where you retrain, you help the guy find a job, and when you find a job and the guy doesn't take the job, you say, well, you don't take the job, the, the, the subsidy is over. And then that works well because they have an insurance, but they also get the job. You understand? And that's what the, the genius of the Danish system. They found a fantastic system, and we explain that in Chapter 11 of the book. And, and, the US, and before, there was the view that the only way you could have low unemployment rate is to have people grow so enormous amount of stress. And, uh, and I think we can do better. It's like if I operate you with, a, with an aesthetic or without an aesthetic. It's better that I operate you with an aesthetic. <laughs> All right. With that, we're now going to go into an example of where creative destruction is going on right now, which is the supermarket industry. Our next speaker is Ben Moore. He is the uh, previously the author of Hellbent, and he is most currently the author of The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. Ben, take it away. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, talk about ways the American supermarket is a miracle, like you said, but some of its miraculous qualities contain tragic flaws uh, that lead to consequences nobody wants and are kind of horrified by um, but to start, you have to understand just how gargantuan the grocery industry is. It's sheer size. We spend $701 billion per year, by far our largest food expenditure, uh, pre-COVID and fast casual. Uh, we spend 2% of our lives in it, wandering aisles and buying. It's also the cheapest system of groceries on the planet. Uh, the American grocery system, um, we spend the least amount of our income on, uh, on food, and also the lowest amount of our of income in the history of the world. And the stores themselves are only taking a, a tiny margins in all this, like 1.5 to 3.5%. Uh, to put this in perspective, in 1900, our great-grandparents were spending 40% of their budget on food. And every year as the century advanced, that fell. Uh, so that by the 50s, our grandparents were spending 30% of their budget, and this year, or rather, 219, Americans spent roughly 8% of their budget. It's just enormous amounts uh, uh, of increase in, in terms of, um, you know, savings. Um, and it, partly because it delivers this bounty with such incredible precision, uh, convenience, regularity, it's almost boring. The size and complexity gets completely ignored. And I think for most people before COVID, they didn't give grocery stores a thought. It's just this miraculous engine of abundance, convenience, and low prices we'd completely taken for granted, which, of course, wasn't always true. Uh, when the first supermarkets opened, they were 
greeted like circuses. Um, the first one opens in Queens and people are driving 50 miles away to visit it. Housewives report feeling faint and dizzy at it. Um, and this is like a 9,000 square foot store, by the way, roughly the equivalent of a convenience store today. So you can imagine a housewife feeling faint and dizzy in one of those stores being transported to a Sam's Club. Uh, and, you know, the uh, echoing effects would be probably pretty profound. Um, and I'm reinforcing all this uh, about the miracle of the supermarket, uh, you know, both its range of offerings, options that are available on our whims that weren't available to the greatest kings or pharaohs or emperors, um, and also the systems of logistics that are backing it up because it's so big that much like geological time or astronomical distances, it actually boggles the mind meaning our comprehension of the size actually gets in the way of intervening in it. The human brain is just used to much smaller numbers, localized action. And in response to the size, the actors inside the system simplify and localize, adding in abstractions to smooth out trade and or focus on what they can see right in front of them. And this begins at the cash register, where despite all the good intentions that we mouth, uh, consumers elevate a few key qualities above all, mainly low price, high quality, lots of options and convenience, which if you pause and reflect on and squint, you'll notice they're all in tension with one another. Um, and also, as the supply chain and deeper in the supply chain, um, we see these abstractions spring up around the notion of commodity goods, and which which are really the engine by which our our food system runs. Um, I think everyone here understands commodity, but it's worth dwelling on for a second. These are goods that can be traded freely, fungible, swapped without worry or trade off. Um, it's etymo the commodity of the word is etymologically derived from the French word for convenience. Like many conveniences, it's enabled by simplifying things, right? So to play the commodity game, your goods must be interchangeable with one another. Um, certain characteristics get selected and elevated to define the product on this scale. Maybe the pH of an apple set for juicing, maybe the aggregate protein content of a fish set to become fish meal for farm, farmed salmon, uh, and other qualities quite intentionally vanish. Maybe the precise species of those fish or how exactly the juicing apple was harvested. In some ways, thinking about commodity goods can be thought of like agreement of, around nuance and how deeply we're gonna look at something and what we're gonna elevate and what we're gonna kind of let vanish. Um, this is all a great thing in many regards and responsible for that miracle. With commodity, we get the blessings of trade, uniformity, purchasing at scale, stability through advanced buying, industrial engineering predicated on regularity. As consumers, we get the comfort of consistency. But there are certain qualities, less empirical ones, like wages paid to employees, requests for overtime, housing standards for live-on-site employees and farm workers, wages withheld six months ago, that are particularly hard to abstract in a reliable manner. They're hard to select and elevate into commodity goods. And the commodity buyer, which is, again, this guy who's kind of the engine of, of our food system in the commercial kitchens or co-packing spaces or manufacturing centers where food made, has a really hard time selecting for them. Um, even if everyone in the system wants to elevate things like wages paid to employees and housing standards. Um, it's just hard 
to elevate them. Uh, and so while the global commodity structure can be very good at mandating some things like cooking temperatures and, um, you know, ensuring that frozen fish are held at a constant temperature, it's really bad at things like labors and working standards and coercion, uh, which poses a problem giving those pressures and those tension points I mentioned at the checkout register. As the market searches endlessly for low prices, commodity markets create a certain standard to play the game. So if you're a producer, many aspects of your cost structure are very rigid, like those freezers that you're using to freeze your fish, but others like labor are not. And so when a buyer who's faced with those tensions comes to ask for lower prices, labor is the place where the costs end up coming. And the popular phrase for this is the race to the bottom. The results are fairly horrendous, and they compound farther down the commodity chain you go. So dismal things like stagnating retail in the U.S. or high turnover of dri and driving shortage and trucking are actually dwarfed by, by real human misery, human bondage, modern slavery, work enforced through beating, violence that's endemic at the very bottom of the supply chain. In, in my book, I go into great detail here. It gets extremely dark. I'm not going to dwell on it now. Um, but again, size really gets in the way of intervention. Even with the best intentions, grocery buyers can't intervene into these supply chains if they want to. The chains are so big, featuring aggregators of aggregators, multiple layers of brokers, that quote unquote, knowing the supply chain is impossible for a single person or even a department. A grocery buyer can't uncover them without embarking on a full-time job, which of course is not their job. It's not their area of expertise. And you know, in writing, I would speak to NGOs who specialize in, in reforming some of these supply chains who admit they are learning as they're doing. So it's not something that you can expect them to learn, um, despite prior conversations, perhaps about retraining. Um, this is not public facing information. And, and in fact, there's a, a great deal of provocarity and, and people willing to lie about me to maintain an in, image of virtue uh, around this. But it's, it's very real um, in terms of the ability for suppliers in the grocery industry to control their supply chain. And I guess I'll wrap it up by saying this is all really dismal stuff, but I want to highlight the opportunity, I guess, in the spirit of the creative destruction conversation, that nobody wants this system. It's not the case of greedy corporations who are willing to engage in the lowest level of trades. It's those grocery stores fighting for the 3.5% margins of, that I was talking about at the beginning in a fierce competition. And they've heavily invested in, in solutions. They just happen to be solutions like the, the $50 billion a year certification industry that just aren't getting the job done and are huge wastes. Consumers obviously don't want images of slavery, child labor, and their food. So there's a tremendous opportunity for people who can either create value by creating smaller, more human scale supply chains or raise worker standards, um, which everyone says they want, to a place where they can be seen and valued throughout the global chain. All right, Ben. You know, um, my first uh, comment is uh, I want to talk about my first job I ever got, which was um, I was a I was a runner uh, at the Chicago Board of Trade, and you know I I was trading I was participating in an ecosystem for commodity futures, and one of the interesting things about the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, I'll just pick one contract, which is the wheat contract. You know, before the Board of Trade was trading wheat futures, um, wheat would be uh, sold uh, from a particular farm to a specific place. 
And what the Board of Trade did was they defined what wheat was, a certain quality, a certain quantity, and then it could be traded on a futures contract, and that led to the commoditization of wheat, commoditization of corn, etc. Um, but when I look back at that 150 years since the Chicago Board of Trade instituted those commodity futures, um, it's, I think, one of the greatest things ever is the commoditization of food. Uh, it allowed for hedging. It allowed for um, specification, as you described it. Should we glorify the commoditization of food because it allowed for uh, the most incredible productivity uh, in history? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would try to avoid the binary because I don't think it's very helpful. Um, it is. It, it absolutely is responsible for what I'm calling this miracle here, um, not just in the financial sense of, of creating uh, markets that are tradable and you can hedge on, but in terms of the, the production angle and creating consistency and regularity there. Um, you know, you, you can't have industrial supply without industrial regular components. And, uh, and you, you, you know, consumers certainly expect that type of uniformity. Uh, on the other hand, it comes with these fairly negative consequences. And I think when the scale gets to a place where certain notions that I think may have been baked into the commodity system 150 years ago, uh, are no longer baked in in terms of, or, or maybe people just didn't care about in terms of, of standards of living and, and wages and decency and, and, and um, you know, forced labor through violence. Um, it's actually an open question, I guess, whether 150 years ago those, uh, those were even on the, the docket of discussion. But I think, you know, the march of progress, we'd like to think that there's something we do care about. Uh, the problem is the anonymizing qualities of commodity and, and enable um, these kind of darker things to creep in on the side. So that's kind of to punt your comment or question. But I, I always try a different. Let me try a different route. Um, we can, you have a, a chapter in your book on Trader Joe's, and I thought it was great. And in it, um, you talk about how Joe um, moves away from standard generic, uh, um, standard corporate brands and goes out and tries to build his own brands internally. You know, um, finding specific coffee with a story, finding a specific salad dressing with a story uh, based on taste, based upon whatever, where it's from, how it's made, or even its lack of uh, our high wages paid to the employees. How do you think about Trader Joe's as an example, working towards the very goals that you're describing? Yes. I mean, I think in many ways, especially at that time, and this is like mid-1960s when Joe is making this, he's doing exactly that. Although I think he would be the first to acknowledge all the trade-offs that he was accepting in doing so. And, you know, Trader Joe's at that time had about a thousand skews, 1,500 skews. Uh, the typical grocery store of that era had about 3,500 um, you know, now we're, 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 we're north of that considerably. And, you know, you'll go to, to these bigger Sam's, not Sam's club, but, but superstores will have like 125,000 SKUs. So he was able to find those values and able to, to kind of zoom in on, on products that um, he could, you know, look at with more of an individual lens and not play the continuous goods game um, by shrinking down his offerings, by uh, creating a buying staff that didn't have to deal with that waste and a warehousing staff that didn't have to deal with like all those ideas. Um, 
and in some ways, it took Trader Joe's a long time to climb to a national. You know, this was in the, the mid '60s. It, it didn't become a national chain until uh, the mid '90s, at least. Um, and they had to start steering back in the other direction. Um, and and they've kind of found a compromised version, which again, I guess, is to say those opportunities are there. They come with compromises. No one's doing all their shopping at Trader Joe's, uh, especially not Joe's day when he was doing those type of innovative things. I mean, I think he booted out all, you know, paper towels and um, lots of things you'd expect to find at the grocery store. I want to go back to what you described as the miracle of the grocery store for a second. Um, I remember a story, I don't know if it's true, that when um, Gorbachev came to visit the United States, that Ronald Reagan, I think the first thing he did was take him to a grocery store uh, to show him um, what choice and plenty looked like. And Gorbachev was absolutely, supposedly flabbergasted uh, at the lack of lines and couldn't believe it was actually true. Do you know this uh, story? Totally. Uh, What you're relating is true-ish. Uh, it actually was at a Randall supermarket in Texas, and he was touring, I think, an aerospace facility, but they stopped off, um, no doubt intentionally, uh, mm-hmm. during this tour at the, at the Randalls, and he, he was pretty staggered by it. And in fact, in his private diaries, he, he wrote something like, I, I have like, great despair if the Soviet people were <laughs> because they would immediately revolt, you know, revolt or like they would, it was, it was a, it was, it was an actual jarring moment for him in his private memoirs. Um, because, and at first, you know, there was this idea that this was a dog and pony show and and it kind of dawned that, no, this was actually, uh, (laughs) this is how the food system worked on a regular basis. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's, that's exactly right. That, that miracle is really important to take into account. I think it's when considering it's the downsides of it, <laughs> because, uh, you know, when thinking about how much of this thing that really stretches our credulity as to whether it's possible or not in, in a recent past, um, it, it's possible that we are, have overreached. And I think that we're not going <laughs> to walk that back by limiting expectations. The genie's kind of out of the bottle. But I think we need to think about ways to reform that system. Um, Let me try a different question. Um, earlier in my conversation with Philippe, I mentioned uh, Amazon as a constant topic of conversation for this show. And Amazon acquired Whole Foods. Um, what are your thoughts on how Amazon will use and reform or modernize Whole Foods or not um, in the context of SKUs and other ways to uh, work with our in the grocery shopping experience? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, so Whole Foods in many ways is a victim of its own success. They were really innovative in the uh, organic space and, and, and the kind of the whole earth space early on, and they nurtured a lot of brands. And they did that by being very decentralized, very nimble, uh, putting a lot of their resources into local buyers who would get to know these smaller, smaller products. Uh, and it, it produced a lot of success. But then as they grew and as those brands grew and, and kind of as organic became the sea change that became, you know, an ever bigger share of, of, of people's pocketbooks, those brands scaled up pretty easily. Um, and Whole Foods you know, the amount of money they were taking to nurture these brands became kind of wasted as the brands would kind of jump over to Target's or Walmart's pretty easily. 
and Whole Foods was not centralized buying in a way that could compete with it. So way pre-Amazon, Whole Foods was, was rethinking how it could play this game and centralize up. And I, I think um, with Amazon, it was kind of an acknowledgement of that strategy that it was not going to innovate on the small level and do kind of what we were talking about with Joe. It was going to kind of stay pat and try to play into its ex- existing brand image of like whole earth, uh, you know, some people call whole paycheck, but kind of like premium with premium prices with some virtue that you're getting as a consumer when you buy from them and absolution. Um, and, and, and not really try to innovate in that space anymore, but instead try to play with the other big boys um, that, that, you know, Walmart now being the number one pur- purveyor of organics. Um, so I, I think that's, you're going to see a continuation of that strategy with Amazon because obviously Amazon brings it, huge amount of expertise with logistics uh, and whatnot. Um, Let me try to bring uh, Philippe. I don't know if if you can jump in here a second. Philippe, you were talking about um, trying to prevent colossal firms through mergers from getting into new businesses. For me, this is a classic example of a difference of view on antitrust policy. Uh, Amazon had no grocery presence it buys Whole Foods and is going to try to reform it. Um, but I think the Biden administration would say, whoa, 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 you're big enough, Amazon. Please don't, you know, we're going to prohibit you from going in the grocery business. How do you feel about Amazon's growth from a public policy standpoint from getting in the grocery business and allowing uh, increases in scale? No, it's true that when you, you can have what we call economies of scope or economies of scale, but the problem is that that may stifle uh, subsequent innovation. You see, that's, that's a bit the fear. You see, because uh, uh, the scale may be so large, you see what I mean, that you can... So it's true that there is a short-run gain of that, which is the, the scale and the scope. Uh, but the question is, will it or will it not stifle future innovation? Maybe in the absence of that, you know, you could have had entry. You know, maybe new entrants could have come. Or, uh, you see what I mean? And there may be, as a result of this, uh, they won't because they will be discouraged by uh, you know, the, the large capacity of the incumbent. You see, that's a bit, uh, that's the kind of things that, com- I, again, I'm not, uh, competition policy is not my specialty. Uh, you should ask people like Gilbert or others. But you see, I think those are the kind of issues. It's true you have some, a kind of short-term gain. They are more productive. They are economies of scope and scale. Uh, there are synergies. So you benefit from that. But on the other hand, the question is, in the longer term, what will be the effect on entry and innovation? And, and now you see that there is the, the, the sense that the, the, this more dynamic view of competition policy should be put forward. You see what I mean? And that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, the, synerg- the short-run synergies are much easier to assess than the long-term cost in terms of steepled innovation and entry. So that's, that's a bit my take on this. I'm sorry not to be more specific. But no, no. What do you think about Ben's other yes. comment about policing the supply chains? Um, and should society expect grocery chains or, for that matter, the food manufacturers from policing um, wages and other uh, matters related to the production of food, or does that, does that really belong with the state and it's not the grocer or the food manufacturer? No, I think uh, there, there is a whole issue of corporate social responsibility because, you know, you could have the Friedman view that firms should just be about maximizing profits and you should let the state decide about contracts or regulation 
but there is no more the view that, you know, uh, there is a role for shareholders and consumers and also pushing for, for some changes. You see what I mean? And so that's the whole debate. You know, we are moving away from the free mind view that firms should just be concerned by profit and that anything else should be in the hands of the state. If only because we know, and that gets back to my point about the triangle, states can be captured by large firms. That's what happened with Trump. You know, uh, uh, large companies, in particular oil companies, are very much capturing the government. And, and, and uh, so that's where you need, that's where, you know, there is a role for corporate social responsibility, for consumers, for shareholders that are concerned about something else than profits, uh, in addition to profits. So that, that's, the, that's the big, uh, you see, that's the issue that we are dealing with. So be the, uh, climate. I just want to jump in. I don't, I don't think grocers have a responsibility necessarily to police their supply chain. What I think is that given the scale, there's an unavoidable lack of transparency that happens. And what we need is innovation around that transparency. Uh, you know, what yeah. we need is ways of creating that visibility through. And, and it, it really dovetails to this Amazon Whole Foods discussion right now. There's a lot of ways to innovate in, in very important, you know, important ways to innovate around the supply chain in terms of workers' living conditions and standards. And, and we haven't yeah. even talked about yeah. Yeah. ecological sustainability. But the problem is, the visibility isn't there. The, it, consumers have a very static view of how these things change. It's like something that they're looking through like many layers of this and it's, it's just blurry and hazy. And, and, and there's, yeah. there's a disconnect between what they think they're getting and what is actually happening. And that disconnect is the problem. Who actually polices it? I'm very agnostic about it. It just needs to get done. And I actually think to your point that grocery stores are are one of the worst in in terms of being able to do that policing. They're not equipped for it. Um, their nation states are uh, far, far better at it. All right. I want to bring Angus into the conversation. Angus, um, in the late 1990s, I lived in London. And at the time, um, London's food quality was relatively poor. Uh, and the people didn't expect much uh, from their food suppliers or their restaurants. Uh, but since then, it's been uh, London is now completely a foodie town, and um, England has much better food. Um, I'm wondering about the neuroscience uh, of food. You know, when Ben was talking about the relative numbers of, I can only imagine going to a general store in 1900 in rural Kansas and looking at the choice offerings that were available to me as compared to the 125,000 SKUs that Ben was saying was available at a modern mega supermarket. How, do, how, does, um, how does neuroscience explain the differences of choice, differences of quality, the breadth um, and then the experience that we have as humans to all this choice and all this improvements in quality and breadth. Well, I think the paradox is, is that the two earlier speakers have talked about, on the one hand, humans have created that diversity of choice in the supermarket because that's innovation. I mean, you know, we, all of us want more, um, and it's exciting for us to go to a supermarket and find, uh, you know, discover something new in the supermarket. The same reason it's exciting to discover a new book on the shelves. So there's this constant drive for more products, more innovation, more choice. But the flip side of that is that the human brain cannot handle choice. 
Um, the human brain, the human brain is not like a computer. A computer can handle, you know, thousands and thousands of data points in a second. A human brain gets swamped out after about six or, or, or seven data points, and then it just starts to kind of cramp up. So actually, what happens is, you know, we create that choice because it's exciting. But then when we get in the supermarket, we immediately get overwhelmed. And you know, most people in a supermarket just go to the three or four things that they know they want to buy and just focus out on every, you know, just ignore everything else because otherwise it's panic-inducing. And if you've ever been in that situation where you're in a, a strange supermarket or you're looking for something where you don't know what it is, I mean, it is kind of like this Kafka-esque vertigo experience where you're completely overwhelmed. So, I mean, I do think that to a certain extent, this is just another example of the way that our, that, that, you know, creative destruction works in the sense that we have generated this thing, um, which on the one hand is very exciting in its generation process, but then very rapidly, you know, does have this kind of darker side to it. So, I mean, I think as in all things in human life, it, it comes about from not romanticizing it or from demonizing it, but basically saying, hey, you know, the fact that supermarkets exist is the sign of an enormous creativity and innovative potential in the human mind. Now let's train that on solving the problems around us. And again, the way to solve problems is locally. I mean, it really is locally. None of us can solve big problems. And I know it's attractive to think about Amazon, and somehow if we fixed Amazon, we would fix the world. But the reality is that most problems get fixed in our backyard. And the more that those problems get fixed in our backyard, the more there's a kind of knock-on effect. Um, I want to go back to Ben for a second. Ben, one of my favorite chapters in your book relates to finding shelf space for a new product. There, um, I don't remember the details, but there was some sort of a salsa product that this woman had um, purchased the rights for and was trying to get it on shelves. And the enormous challenges for entrepreneurs, innovators, to actually land a space in the modern supermarket. Maybe you can comment on that and talk about that in the context of creative destruction and innovation in that grocery store. Yeah, sure. So this that was salsa, combination coleslaw salsa. Uh, <laughs> kind of a, a lost dog of a, of a product. Um, you know, it tastes delicious. I promised I wouldn't feature anything that I wouldn't eat myself. Uh, but, it, you know, partly because of these very low margins, in the industry, supermarkets are such a volume game. They've kind of invented ways of of getting, you know, of of, of getting their margins in other places besides uh, price on shelf, and that it comes through selling shelf space, which is not that you know. It sounds odd because I think when you walk into a supermarket, you picture something like a public market where the best possible items are going to be there because they've kind of survived some competitive forces to get on shelf. But actually what you're viewing is is kind of a curated assortment of things that the category manager or grocery buyer has put there, and they're all leveraged off of each other to um, either highlight items with really high gross margins for them, or they've just paid to play and are there because the entrepreneur or producer has put up some money to get on shelf. And, and that money called, called trade spend comes in a variety of different ways from outright plotting fees where they're literally just paying money for inches on shelf space. Was, and these, these are not small numbers either. Um, you're talking about like a million dollars for nationwide rollout of a single SKU in, and that's a, that one, one item uh, in, in the frozen aisle, um, you know, $50,000 for like a 12 inch section in, in an upscale supermarket. Um, to 
payments for internal promotion fees or buy one, get ones, or all these free tastings where this, the supermarket is essentially getting free cases of product uh, in exchange for some dubious promotion. Um, and, and so there's this whole kind of – it's just well, a different how we, business. How should we think about this, Ben? Because you mentioned earlier that the supermarket basically doesn't make any money. It's just unbelievable. It makes two cents for every dollar of purchase. So the place is lean, right? And so what are they selling? The, the businesses are selling, you know, shelf space, and these firms have become very entrepreneurial on how to sell that shelf space. It's there for the highest bidder. They have all these gimmicks. You can, you know, buy one, get one free. You can have the tastings as you described. In many ways, it's like your modern department store, except it's food. Um, That's right. App store. So- I mean, you know, like, you know, like other places that take, take a percentage for using their platform. That's all they're selling is their platform. That's all they got. They got this box, and they're trying to get as much out of that box as they can. But it's such—it's so competitive. Going back to what Philippe was talking about, we want a highly competitive environment. Good God, the American grocery store has to be the most competitive place known to man. It, they're making two percent. I actually think Amazon's only making like one and a half percent on their sales. It's unbelievable how competitive these markets are. Everyone's got to be the best in logistics and best in marketing, etc. How should we think about this grocery store at, at, at from 10,000 feet up? Is it uh, the most dynamic, um, fantastic store that is offering this enormous breadth? Um, and let me ask maybe asking this question. When you think about the future, if, if 25 or 50 years from now, your children or grandchildren go to his grocery store, what will it look like and how will, um, how will they view that experience? Well, let, let me give a slightly disappointing answer, but I think it's real, is that nobody really knows how they're thinking. People are thinking about this inside the industry in a very confused manner um, it, because both of those things coexist with, with each other. At one point, they're taking very slim, very razor-thin margins off products. On the other hand, they're running this kind of backdoor platform fees where they have all these different um, not straightforward charges that they're they're taking, and if someone is making money in their business, they're going to come after it. But they're, but again, like it's not just through slotting fees, which is like inches for for dollars. It's through a whole wide range of kind of backdoor things that will change year to year, um, just so they get their cut. And and the answer is like I I, remember I talked to some consultant when writing the book, and he, he you know he was like nobody knows what anything costs in this industry. The, the, like the bottom, like their internal bottom lines are often very fuzzy for them because they're getting their margins. So it's the, these two things are kind of coexisting at the same time, which allows people to say on one hand, oh, we're so lean and efficient, look at this. And on the other hand, very backwards. Um, I think that the, if you take, to go back to your question, like where this will go into the future is I, I do think there'll be, a great movement uh, away from a lot of these ticky tacky things. Oh, just it, it, there'll be a movement towards consistency. Um, uh, I think you know computers help us make sense of big numbers and big volumes, and you know help from artificial intelligence and in applying things to these problems um, is going to de- do away with a lot of the antiquated parts of the grocery industry. But right now, it's a big cluster, um, it's big snap, big big mess. All right. I end each episode of What Happens Next on a note of optimism. Sorry to blindside you guys, um, but what are you optimistic about as it relates to your topic? What do you, so let's start with you, Ben. Ben, what are you optimistic about uh, with the grocery store? 
Yeah, I'm super optimistic in the sense that I think COVID has really shown a light on a lot of like the quote unquote problems around essential workers. And I think um, it's one, getting a lot of attention and two, people are looking for solutions to this in ways that are really um, honoring essential workers. So right now, for-profit certification regimes are kind of how ethical claims are are enforced and you pay an outside auditor to go in. And that's really changing as people are trying to focus on using workers themselves who are obviously the experts of their own situation as ways of gaining insight into the supply chain. And there's a variety of things that are kind of slowly bubbling up for that. And, and that both offers an opportunity to put a lot of waste and, um, you know, a promise of honoring the expertise of, of workers and empowering them. Okay. Uh, Angus, uh, what note of optimism would you like to end on? Well, I guess I'm optimistic because literature is an infinitely renewable resource. It's something we all can do. And if you want to get a little positive creative destruction into your life uh, right now, just get a book you love and uh, give it to a friend and uh, change their world. Perfect. Okay, that ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's episode. Um, our first speaker will be Ann Clark Wolf. I attended Nutra High School with Ann as well as worked with her for over a decade at Solomon Brothers. Ann ran fixed income capital markets at Citigroup and global corporate banking at Bank of America. Her latest project is to create a woman-run investment bank. I hope to learn from Ann her challenges for setting up an investment advisory business from scratch, and I also want to hear about the market for advice exclusively from women bankers. Our second speaker is Lisa Picard, who is the CEO of EQ Office, which is Blackstone's office division. Prior to that, Lisa ran Canyon Ranch Spa and Resorts, and in her career, Lisa has managed the development of 6.5 million square feet of real estate with a market value of more than $5 billion. I I hope to learn from Lisa about the future of office. Our third speaker will be Paul Ray. He is the Charles and Louise Lee Chair at Western Heritage at the Van Andel Graduate School of Statesmanship at Hillsdale College. Paul has written on the classics from the ancient world as well as the foundations of democracy in the American Revolution. Paul will speak about the cycles in American politics. If you're interested in listening to replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, and Spotify. Please check out our new social media outlet on Twitter at What Happens in Six. We want to engage our audience and hear your views and ask questions for the show. I want to create a community that learns together. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you, and you may disconnect at this time. I appreciate it. Bye-bye.